Our text for today comes from uh, 2 Corinthians verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and, and for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone in, is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him uh, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning. I hope everybody is gearing up for a good Father's Day here this afternoon. You know, being a dad, I say, I've said it before, is one of the most challenging and rewarding and uh, sometimes very confusing things that I have done in my life. Uh, most days I go to bed and I lay my head on the pillow and I don't feel particularly good at parenting. I feel like I haven't given my children enough time, I've, that I've been on my phone too much, that uh, I was short with them in ways that I shouldn't have been short with them. It's not always, it's not always great, right? You're not always, you don't always feel excellent at this job of being a parent or being a father. And here's the thing. None of us are, right? None of us are. None of us are perfect. None of us, none of us uh, fill every parenting slot uh, no father is a perfect father. But, but, I think the best thing we can do for our children, the, the greatest gift we can give them, is to live in God's grace. And by that, what I mean is, is that they see, in some way, shape, or form, our imperfection, because that's important, but that we live the, in, with our imperfection under the loving and gracious hand of our Father. You see, uh, understanding, seeing a, a, a father or a mother who uh, understands that they're broken, that they're, that they're faulty, that there are things wrong with them, and yet they live gracious lives under the loving hand of God. They live forgiven lives as followers of Jesus. is an incredible thing. You know, there's so much law in this world, and there's so much achieving in this world, and there's so much efforting in this world. And for a, a child to be able to see their parent go, yeah, I'm broken, and I'm messed up, and I'm trying, but I'm forgiven, and to walk graciously in that mindset is such a powerful thing. And it's also incredibly countercultural. You won't see it other places. You won't see it other places. And so my encouragement for you fathers today is to learn to walk and to live in the grace of God and to allow that to transform your heart. And if, as you do that, you will become a little better at parenting. It's just natural, right? As you become more like Jesus, you'll get a little better at it. But um, to live the grace of God is such a powerful witness to our children. And that would be my, my Father's Day encouragement to you. That and naps. Those are the two things. That 
and naps. All right. So today we are talking about 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 11, about something Paul calls the, the ministry of reconciliation in our teaching text for today. But if you've been around church for any length of time, you have heard what Paul is talking about here as the ministry of reconciliation under a few different names. Here are some names that Christians give this. Witnessing, sharing our faith, telling people about Jesus, sharing the love of Jesus, reaching the lost, and probably, most commonly, evangelism. Evangelism. Now, this is a word that has negative connotations in our culture, doesn't it? It carries with it this idea of shoving something down people's throats that they don't want, right? It just, like in broader American Western culture, that's the connotation it has. Um, and there's something about talking about evangelism, right? Or talking about what Paul calls the ministry of reconciliation that gets some people the hair on the back of their neck to stand up a little bit, right? Uh, some of us have had experiences with what we call evangelism, right? And some of us haven't had positive ones. Or maybe you had a really positive one and someone shared their faith with you and you came to Jesus because of it. We all have different stories, but generally speaking, when we talk about these things, I think the common thing that comes to our minds are the people who like knock on our doors, right? And, and the strangers who knock on our doors or the person who gives us a track on the street and tell us that we need to follow Jesus, as uh, myself, this happens often. I live on 18th Street in Cedar Falls, which is, one of the common, which is one of the common streets, and a number of different people tend to knock on my door and witness to me. Sometimes they're Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons as well, but sometimes they're Christians, and I always say, they say, have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And I say, absolutely, I have. Have you? <laughs> and, and then they say something along the lines of, uh, yes, that's why I'm here. And I say, yes, that's why I'm a pastor. Uh, but here's the funny thing. They never believe me. They never believe that I'm a Christian. I think that so they, they're just so used to the script that they have to see it to its end, right? They always have to finish it out. Um, but anyways, uh, but that's kind of what we think about, right? When we think about this ministry of reconciliation that Paul is talking about here. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. This, all of the kind of presuppositions and, and preconceived notions we have about these ideas of evangelism or witnessing or sharing our faith and all of the ways in which the world kind of looks at quote-unquote evangelical people and says like don't shove your beliefs down my throat all of that kind of constellation of thinking about these ideas I think fall desperately short of the picture that Paul holds out for us in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5 about what it means to be ministers of reconciliation in the world. Reconciliation between peoples and reconciliation between God and people. You see, the truth of the matter is, is that what Paul is talking about here is not the guy at the football game with the John 3.16 sign, all right? That's not what he's talking about. If that's you, go, go for it. I don't really care. Uh, but uh, but that's, not, that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about this beautiful word that he uses here, of reconcile or reconciliation. And this is a beautiful term. If you're an accountant in the, in the world, it might not be a beautiful term to you because in accounting, that's a bad word. But, uh, but in, the, in the church, in, in, a, in a relational sense, this word reconciliation is beautiful. It's the idea of two people or two groups of people overcoming their differences 
overcoming their arguments and coming to a place not of just where they stop fighting, but a place of renewed relationship, of, of harmony, of, of flourishing relationship, of harmonious living. This is what this word reconciliation means. It means from a place of strife and division to a place of friendship, to a place of friendship. And that is a startling idea that Paul says uh, God is about and we ought to be about as God's people. Reconciliation is not just about getting along or being tolerant of one another. Reconciliation in the relational sense is about a strained and frustrated relationship being made beautiful and good. And this is the picture that Paul uses in this passage uh, to, de- to describe the relationship that takes place between humans and God. Paul says that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus himself has made a way, has made reconciliation possible for the entirety of humanity and the God who created them. And this is great news. This is, this is more than good news. This is great news. This reconciliation, Paul says, goes out into all of the world as a good and powerful announcement of a significant change in circumstances for every human being. A significant change in circumstances for every human being. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, something fundamental in the structures of God's good world have shifted And now Paul says we are messengers of that shift. You following me? We are the ones who communicate that the world was this way, and now it is a whole other way. This is why Paul says this is a new creation. Not just just a new opportunity. He doesn't just want to sell you some knives, right? Like, I would like to, have you ever tried this vacuum? It's not quite like that, is it? He's not a salesman. He's not a salesman. And the gospel is not something you can sell. It's something that must be announced. It must be communicated. It must be shouted from the rooftops because it is a change in circumstance. Something has happened. Jesus has done it. And now there are new possibilities and new hope made available to all of the world. This is far different than what we think about, some of us, when we think about evangelism, isn't it? It's a whole different type of thing. For Paul, it's a cosmic reality that, that, that changes everyone's lives, but needs to be brought individually into each individual's life. Just, uh, we just over the weekend celebrated Juneteenth. Anybody familiar with that? That's the celebration, or commemoration is probably a better word of when uh, slavery, uh, it's the day we commemorate the end of slavery, but what the, if you read into that story, what's so fascinating about it is Juneteenth took place two years after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, right? Two years afterwards. What happened was it took two years for the good news of the freedom that was made available to these slaves to actually get to their ears, right? And we celebrate not the day that the paper was signed all the time, but the day that, it, that that good news was received by a population, and then they could start to move forward as free people. What Paul is saying is that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new reality has been brought into existence 
Freedom has been made available to the, to the people of this world. But yet, Paul says, you and I are the messengers, the ones who go and tell people that this new reality has been enacted, that freedom and salvation have been made available. This is what Paul says. And that is a totally different thing than trying to get people morally lined up, isn't it? It's a totally different thing. And it's a powerful reality that it comes into being. And so here's what I want to do today, just very quickly before we come to the table of communion together. I want to lay out three reasons why, we, why Paul says here in this passage that we are supposed to tell people about Jesus. All right? Very simply. And then I want to talk about three ways that we can tell people about Jesus. Three ways in which we're supposed to go about this work. Two from this passage and one just from me because it felt weird to do three and two. Three and three felt a lot more. It felt like it, you know, it lined up better. So here's, here we go. Are you with me? Three reasons why we tell people about Jesus that Paul lays out in this passage. Number one, we've basically already covered it. Paul said something new and unexpected have, has happened and people have to hear about it. Here's what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. In Christ, new creation has begun. And those who have tasted of this new life made available to us in the person of Jesus are called to proclaim that that reality exists. You see, if you taste the joy of what it means to follow Jesus, it is not hard to make that a proclamation, to make your life your, a living proclamation of that message. This is what Leslie Newbegin says, who's, uh, who was a missionary to India, but also a theologian. He says this, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot be possibly suppressed. It must be told. Who could be silent about such a fact? The mission of the church in the pages of the New Testament is more like the fallout from a vast explosion, a radioactive fallout, which is not lethal, but life-giving, <laughs> which I thought it, you could tell he wrote this in the 80s when everybody was scared about getting blown up by nuclear weapons. But uh, <laughs> we're not scared about that as much, are we? We're just scared of other things. Uh, but here's the point. Here's the point. This is a proclamation of joy. This is a proclamation of joy. And if you don't have joy in your heart, if you don't see Jesus, if you don't experience Jesus as in, with a joyful heart, it's hard to make this proclamation as though it were joy. Part of the problem with the ways in which we talk about things like evangelism in the church is we talk about it as though it is an obligation. And it is. It's a mandate, right? Jesus gives the Great Commission. He gives, a, he gives a, a world mandate to his to his disciples to go and preach this message and tell it. But if it is not coupled with a kind of explosive joy, then I don't think it carries the same weight, right? No one wants to be welcomed into a good news that's actually a bad news, right? People want to step into a good news that is actually good news. And the good news of Jesus' grace and, and of his love and his, of his lordship is a good news that must be carried with joy. And we must experience the reality of that new creation in our daily lives. I know this is hard for some of us, right? It doesn't always feel like Jesus is particularly close. And we all go through seasons where joy is harder to access. 
And then we will go through seasons where joy is really easy to access. And I get all of that. But I promise you, I promise you that one of the things we need to do if we want to learn about what it means to be ministers of reconciliation, to help to introduce people to the good news of who Jesus is, one of the things we need to learn to do in our own lives is cultivate regular rhythms of joy, right? So that we can communicate this message with joy. So that's the first thing. Something unexpected has happened and people need to hear about it. Here's the second reason that Paul says we need to do this, where we need to share the good news with people. He says, we share the message because we have experienced it, which I just said. He says this, verse 17, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. If you have been, if you're in the room today and you're a follower of Jesus, if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, and that in and of itself, that experience should be something, should be something that we want to communicate to the world. It should be, shouldn't it? it and the, again, if, if, the, if the communication of the good news of Jesus, if, if telling people about Jesus is hard for you, some of that might just have to be with personality. If you're, you know, this is easier for extroverts than it is for introverts. I get all of that. But the reality is, is that if it's something that we, we've experienced, if it's an existential experience in our lives, then I don't think it's a very hard thing to communicate to people. I really don't. I think that it's something that will just kind of naturally flow out of us. If the reality of Jesus's life and the presence of the Holy Spirit within us is something that we're connected to on a daily basis, then there will be regular and routine experiences of that washing out of our own hearts and all over all, everybody who's around us. It'll be a normal thing. And so it's a, it's a message that we have to experience, Paul says in verse 18. But uh, he also says something interesting about the mission of the church specifically and why we are called to be agents of reconciliation in the world. In verse, continuing verse 18 into 19, he says this, All this is from God who reconciles us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself not counting people's sins against them. You see, Paul tells us here that if we want to be near God, we have to be where God is. And where is God according to this passage? God is out on the outskirts communicating the love, his love, to people who don't know about it. This is where God is. If to to want to be where God's activity is, is to want to be where there are people who don't know him, right? This is the kind of, uh, this is the dividing line. God is most certainly with his people, and he's most certainly with his church, but there is an element of God's being that is always moving out missionally into the world. This is what we hear in the book of Acts, right? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. There's this idea that the, that the message of Jesus is propulsive and that it's always moving out. And that in order to be a Jesus people, there has to be a component of our lives that is always moving towards those who don't know him. To, to extend the rule and reign of God, to be messengers of this good and gracious reconciliation, to be people who simply bear witness to the goodness of grace of God that we've experienced in our own lives. To, and to be on that, in that space is to find a place where God actually is. 
You know, this is this, this, so many parables that Jesus tells, this parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin or of the good, or of the, of the lost son are all parables about God's heart for those who are far from him, right? And to be near people who are far from God or who have not been reconciled to the loving and gracious uh, life of Jesus is to be where God is and to be where God's heart is. God's heart is always for his lost sheep, and ours ought to be too. So those are the three reasons that Paul lays out for why we are to do this ministry of reconciliation, but he also gives us some helpful hints about how to do it, right? So three ways to share the good news of Jesus with people. Here's how you do it, right? Live a life that provokes the question to which Jesus is the only answer. This is the hard one, right? This is the hard one. How in the world can I live a life that provokes a question to which Jesus is the only answer? This is very difficult. I was with my father this weekend, and um, there were some neighbors were in a fight, like a real fight, like yelling and screaming. Uh, they live on a lake, and there's a bunch of people who live close to one another, and they were they were in an argument. And I, and. and I've, I, I thought to myself, I've never been in an argument like that. Maybe it's just because I'm very, I'm very uh, uh, conflict averse. But I remember thinking to myself, what would I do if I, was, if I found myself in an argument like that? If some, someone was like really bearing down on me and really angry, how would I respond? And then I had like some like flash of a vision of like how good of a fighter I would be if I ever got in a fight. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, only thought, only pe the only people who have those thoughts are the people who have never been in a fight before in their whole lives, right? The money's on quite bad, just for the record. You don't get to talk this good. Learn, you know, if, you, if your fists work, you don't talk like this. Uh, anyways, but here's the, t I don't know why I told that story, but it brought it up in my mind. But then my mind went to this idea. How, in the midst of a, of, of a contentious argument, could I witness to the reality and love of Jesus? Crazy, right? If someone came at me with that level of vitriol, right? When normally what I would do is get my ire up, right? How could I respond in a different way was the next thought I had. How could I witness to the reality and love of Jesus in the way I respond in conflict with someone? You see, I've seen people in this world who just operate on a different wavelength. And when you ask them, like, why are you doing things that way? Or why do you serve without any, anything, needing anything in return? Or why do you love? Or why are you this gracious? Or just fill in the blank. What is going on with you? And the answer is almost always because Jesus saved me. And I'm loved. And I don't need anything from anyone. It almost always comes back that way. It almost always comes back that way. And the reality is, is that we're not saved because we live perfect, God-honoring lives. We're not Christians because of that. We're Christians because of God's grace and his mercy to us. But his grace and his mercy, if we allow them to, will have a work, will do a work in our hearts that will create in us a kind of life that will provoke a question to which Christ can be the only answer. 
and this is a hard question, and it's one I ask myself sometimes, but I'm going to ask it to you, but it's a hard question, all right? So get ready. If no one is asking you that question, no one is asking you that question about your own life, it's a good indicator, right, that maybe some things need to change, right? We can ask this all of ourselves. If I'm not living a life that's provoking a question about why I am the way I am, in a positive sense of the term, right, then maybe there are some things in my life that need to change, right? It's a hard question, isn't it? Oh, it's a hard question, but it's a good one to ask ourselves from time to time. All right, so that's number one. Uh, live a life that provokes a question to which Jesus is the only answer. Number two of the ways that we talk about Jesus, the way that we share the good news, the way that we witness to the, to the good news of the gospel is that the gospel must always be announced with grace, with grace. Paul calls this message, this good news, the gospel of grace, right? That's a shorthand term that he uses to describe it. And part of the reason I'm convinced that we're so gun-shy about this idea of telling people about Jesus is because we've had interactions with people who communicate this message ungraciously, right? It's the guy on the street corner with the bullhorn, right? Let's just be honest. It's the Turner Burn person. Let's totally, right? That's why. That's why, we're, that's why we don't want to do this. That's why, that, that's why it's bothersome. It is the person who would rather give me a track than have a conversation with me, right? That, 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 that this trepidation exists in our heart. But the gospel is a gospel of grace, and it must be embodied graciously. And I would argue, because it's a gospel of grace, it also must be uh, embodied relationally, right? And so while there might be an occurrence in your life where you're in the midst of a conversation and the Holy Spirit is just there and you feel like it's the right time to share with someone about Jesus, or maybe somebody will just randomly ask you, you'll sit, be sitting next to somebody on a bus as if anybody in this room really rides buses other than my kids to school, but, um, and you'll just have a conversation or an airplane or something like that. And those things happen. Those things happen. But I do believe that the primary, the primary way we're called to announce this good news of Jesus is relationally, through the relational connections we have in our lives as we love and serve and care for people, as they see us and they see our good deeds and they glorify our Father in heaven, right? This is the primary way. But if, it's, if the base level reality of the way in which we communicate the love of Christ is not gracious, then it will not be received, and I would argue it's not the gospel, all right? So it has to be embraced graciously. And third, the third thing this morning is that we have to actually learn the gospel. We have to learn it. So if I were to ask you, what, what is the good news? You know, what would you say? I think, I think it's important for each and every one of us to actually have an answer to that question. And so I'm going to help you this morning. All right? This is what pastors are supposed to do. They're supposed to have people... Help people, right? So here's what it, here's what I think a really handy uh, a really handy way of summarizing the gospel is. The good news in thirty words. Are you ready? Here it is. Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love. Save us from sin. Set up God's kingdom. Shut down religion so we can share in God's life. I think that's a really good definition of what the gospel is. Sometimes 
and this is not this is not an indictment of anybody but sometimes we've shrunk our gospel down so small that it take that we kind of miss the point of the full point of this but i think this gospel in 30 words does a tremendous job of summarizing the gospel in all of its fullness and uh, here, I did you one more. We printed out a, we printed out a, a gospel in 30 words piece of paper. It's on, the, it's, on the, uh, it's on the coffee bar when you leave. You can grab it. It's got, um, this is from the church that uh, does our children's curriculum. So this is the same church that, uh, that where we derive our children's curriculum from. But they, they, do with, they have some supporting scriptures and some other stuff there to support each of, those, uh, each of those propositions. But I think it's a beautiful summation of the gospel. If we can come to a place where we can, we know that Jesus transforms lives, right? And we know that Jesus saves, but what does the life of Jesus mean, right? What is the good news? What am I actually communicating to people? I think this is a beautiful summation of the gospel. You know, different times through history, Christians have summed up the gospel in different ways. You know, you used to hear about the four spiritual laws or things like that, ways of communicating this good news. But for me, this does a tremendous job of communicating the gospel of Jesus in a way that's um, theologically sound, but also easy enough to put in your pocket and take with you. So uh, if you're interested in, in taking that uh, gospel in 30 words, I think we printed out 15 of those sheets, so you can grab one off the coffee bar if you want. I would encourage you, this is, Jesus is the most interesting person who ever lived. Uh, he, did, uh, he didn't let himself uh, be the mascot for Dos Equis, but he's, that's Jesus. Sorry, I made a beer joke. No beer jokes. Uh, but here's the thing, right? Jesus is the most interesting person who ever lived. This, this revolution called Christianity that, that he began in the span of 300 and some odd years swept over the known world and changed everything, everything. Something happened there. And it is our job to continue the message of communicating this. We are not coer coercer, co coercive people. It is not our job to, con to, to convince or to make or to conform. It is simply our job to be witnesses, to bear witness to a reality, and to communicate this message in such a way as that the kingdom of God expands, as that more, more people come to know who Jesus is, and the love of God, the love of God would grow in our communities and in our spheres of influence. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And it's good news, and it's good work. It's good work. If you've ever wondered, like, what am I called to do in this world? Being a, a, a messenger, uh, an emissary, a minister of this ministry of reconciliation is good work. It's the type of work that brings God glory and praise and brings his heart joy. And as we, uh, as we move along in this life, I know it can be difficult, especially in our kind of modern, in the modern, ever more secular West. And it, it's going to take even more work as we go into the future to explain actually what Jesus is and who he is. Because we used to live in a, in a world, even 50 years ago, where everybody knew the gospel, they just had to be reminded, right? <laughs> just FYI, you know you're wrong, right? And they go, yeah, I know. Now that, that we're, we're having less and less of a kind of common shared religious understanding, and part of the part of the part of the endeavor of sharing the gospel is to lay the groundwork to help people understand who Jesus is 
and how good this good news really is and how, tra- how much the world is transformed with his life, death, and resurrection. And so today, before we come to the table of communion, uh, just in an attitude of prayer with me, wherever you're at, I would be remiss talking about the ministry of reconciliation if I didn't give uh, everyone in the place and anyone who is in the place who doesn't, isn't a follower of Jesus and has been listening to this message and been going, what is he talking about, <laughs> right? I would be very remiss if I didn't give you Uh, an opportunity to actually receive Jesus, to respond to this good news this morning. So if, wherever you are, if you would just close your, uh, close your eyes and bow your head for a moment. And just in an attitude of prayer, uh, just in an attitude of prayer, if you would just take a second and search your heart and just open yourself up to the possibility that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that because of Jesus, we know that God loves us, that our sins are forgiven, that we can be a part of his kingdom, that we no longer have to be bound by the chains of religion, and we can now share in his life. Because of the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, those have all become available to us. And so if you're in this place today and you don't, you don't follow Jesus, maybe you did at one point, uh, but that's not, that's not the active orientation of your life. Just in an attitude of prayer this morning, um, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, if you would just raise your hand for me, I'm the only one who will see it. You just raise your hand. And by that upraised hand, you're just saying, Nick, would you pray for me this morning? I want to know Jesus. I want to know him in a way that you're talking about today. I want to be reconciled to him. Thank you. Thanks for that hand. Thanks for that hand. Let's pray together, shall we? And we'll all pray uh, just in accordance in, uh, to be of one heart and one mind, shall we? Father, we love you. And we pray, God, for uh, that one hand that we saw today, God. And we pray, God, for uh, those in this room who might be feeling a little skeptical about Jesus or sharing the good news of Jesus. I pray that you would give us an encounter with the love and the Holy, and presence of the Holy Spirit that would empower us to share this message. And I pray, God, that we would know, that we would know that we know, that we are reconciled to you. And that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can have newness of life and hope again. And we pray it all in that name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. And now... I'm going to be gone next weekend, and that's not an excuse to skip church. Uh, but because, because I'm going to be gone next weekend, I wanted to receive communion together today with you. And so, uh, you know, communion is an ordinance of the church. It's a practice that Jesus gave to his disciples as a means of remembrance, as an act of worship, just like when we sing songs or we pray together. It's an act of worship that's meant to draw us close to each other and to draw us closer to the Lord. And so communion for the early church was a representation of the 
kind of love that God has for them, but also the shared love that they're called to have for one another. It was a corporate act. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that some who had been taking communion had died because they had taken it wrongly. It's not because they had a sin that they hadn't confessed. It was because they had sinned against the body. They had, they had uh, taken advantage of some of their brothers or sisters, or they had, um, what was really happening was they were taking advantage of one another financially, right? But I think the, the truth is that there is something holy and there's something sacred that happens when we come to the table of communion. And God does desire that his people would be rightly related to one another when we come to the table, that we not bear too much ill will towards one another, that there not be too much internal strife, but rather that we give those things to God when we come to the table. And we make an effort to be people of reconciliation because we're ministers of reconciliation, because we, we communicate the reconciliation that has to happen between God and people. We need to work hard to make sure that, that we reconcile between one another. And so this morning, if as we come to the table, I just want you to take a second where you are and just in an attitude of prayer, if you just search your heart, if there is any ill will or if you're bearing anything uh, towards another person, specifically if you're bearing something towards another Christian, uh, especially if you're, somebody might even be in this church, that happens all the time. Would you just uh, deal with God with that for a moment? And if need be, maybe you need to go and talk to that person uh, after church. But, uh, but I just feel like it might be a really good thing to do this morning. So just uh, in the quietness of our hearts, before we come to the table, let's just search our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to reveal anything in our hearts that maybe he wants to clean up a little bit. And if there's any division or strife or, or just tension, if there's any gravel in our soul because of a relationship, that God would help us to clean that out this morning. Let's do that in the name of Jesus. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, what we were talking about earlier. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment upon himself if he does not take the body rightly. So we want to be aware of that as we come to the table. And as we confess our sins, and as we hold maybe our grievances before the Lord, we can know that we come to the table with clean hands and pure hearts this morning. So 
This is the good news. We get to actually come to the table this morning. No more little plastic cups. So I'm going to pray, and then we can line up. We can move our feet the way we like to when we take communion, and we'll come to the table, and then we'll come back to our seat, and we'll worship for a little bit before we go this morning. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the gift of Jesus' shed blood and broken body on the cross for our sins. We know that there is no other way in this world. There is no other death by which we can have freedom than the death of Jesus. And so this morning we stand on and we glory in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray that as we come to the table this morning, you would just hammer your grace into our hearts. <laughs> just hammer your grace into our hearts that we might live your life this week. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Would you come to the table with me?
Father, we give you praise and we thank you that we've had the ability to be here this morning to worship you, to be together, to come to the table. And I pray that as we go today, you would have us go as ministers of reconciliation. God, would you give us, each of us, a divine appointment this week, an opportunity to communicate the love, the grace, and the goodness of God to those around us. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen and amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. Happy Father's Day. Go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.